What's up, hardcore humans? Welcome to another episode of season three of the Hardcore Humanism podcast. Today, we are talking with Brent Smith, vocalist, songwriter, and founding member of the hard rock band Shinedown. You may know Shinedown from hit songs such as Second Chance, Save Me, and my personal favorite, Heroes. In 2021, Shinedown was ranked number one by Billboard on the greatest of all time mainstream rock artists chart and has sold more than 10 million records worldwide. Shinedown recently released a new song called Symptom of Being Human and are about to embark on an American tour. Throughout their career, Shinedown has stepped up on many occasions to be strong mental health advocates who challenge the stigma of mental illness. And for this tour, Shinedown is partnering with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and donating $1 from every ticket sold from the upcoming tour to the organization. To get more information on Shinedown's tours, music, and merchandise, check out the band at shinedown.com. Now, in the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program, we want you to apply principles of humanistic psychology to your life so that you can find your purpose, work hard to achieve it, and build a community around you who will support your most authentic and purpose-driven life. And on the Hardcore Humanism podcast, we talk with artists such as Brent to hear their stories of their authentic life so that we can learn from their experience as we embark on our own purpose-driven journey. Now, one of the most difficult things that can interfere with our leading a fulfilling life is when we feel stuck, stuck in a personal or professional situation, stuck with a mental or physical health issue, or maybe just stuck because we don't know what we want in our life or how to get it. Whatever the reason, feeling stuck can be overwhelming and paralyzing. We feel trapped because we just don't see a way out. And even worse, we often feel like we are the only ones who feel stuck, who feel trapped and helpless and incapable of making change. And when we feel stuck or trapped, we often need two things. First, we need the validation of our feelings to feel heard and understood. Many of us struggle with difficult issues where it is understandable that we feel stuck. Feeling validated can make us feel like we understand ourselves and possibly understood by others so that we don't feel so isolated and alone. But then at the same time, we also need a sense of hope and possible strategies that could help us make progress and meaningful change in our life so that we don't ultimately feel so helpless or stuck. And I really feel like Shinedown's song, Symptom of Being Human, provides that validation and a little bit of hope and problem solving that we need in those situations. In the song, Brent talks about feeling, quote, sometimes I'm in a room where I don't belong, awkward, weird. That feeling of just wanting to hide in the hope that everything disappears. But then he also talks about what I thought was a very interesting image. The idea that when we feel alone and isolated, we can visualize ourselves being invited to what he describes as the lunatic ball. Like there is an entire party filled with people who are all feeling awkward, isolated, and weird at the same time. And we're a part of it. And that mindset shift that there are many people out there who struggle can help us reduce our anxiety in a given moment by making us feel less alone. Brent goes on to discuss how in his own life, he actually feels grateful for those moments of anxiety. He reframes anxiety not as something to feel ashamed of, but as a sign that he's alive and pushing forward in his life. And Brent talks about behavioral strategies such as changing his diet and exercising to reduce some of the symptoms that would trigger anxiety episodes for him. So let's listen to what Brent of Shinedown has to say. All right, Brent, welcome to the Hardcore Humanism Podcast. I'm pumped. Nice to be here. 
All right, let's get right into it. A Symptom of Being Human, the song, I feel like it really resonated. So let's just get right into what it means and, and the arc of the whole concept. Well, the only way I know how to describe a symptom of being human is first and foremost, starting off with what is it really saying overall? And what it's saying overall is that we're, as far as human beings are concerned, we're all a work in progress. That's part of being alive. But this particular song was one of the first songs that was written for our latest record uh, titled Planet Zero. You have to understand something. We wrote this record in the midst of a global pandemic. And so there were a lot of emotions going on at this time. And for myself and Eric, our bass player and producer of this record, alongside myself, Barry, our drummer, and our guitar player, Zach, this was a song that when we were writing it, I think the element of what I was thinking about the most was our crew on the road. Because remember, this is the very beginning of 2020. And so everything, when the pandemic occurred, everyone went inside and everyone was trying to figure out what was going on to do their part and what have you. But for the live touring industry, everything was shut down. And so when we're writing this song, I'm just talking about these men and women that are the people that make sure that we're able to tour the way that we tour, their livelihood is the road. Their livelihood are these mass gatherings and bringing people together and having people together and celebrating not only music, but being around one another. And I understood how fearful they were of when is our, are we ever going to be able to go back to work? You know, what's actually going on? So there was a lot of anxiety inside of, of what was happening at the time. And so when I was writing Symptom, I was really thinking about what a lot of people on the planet were probably going through. And that idea about sometimes I'm in a room where I don't belong and the house is on fire and there's no alarm and the walls are melting too. How about you? The house is your mind. The house is, you know, all of the thoughts that you're left alone with at night when you're by yourself and how you understand not only your psyche, but how you're evolving as a person. But, uh, you know, this world can be a really tricky place and a very scary place at the same time. It can be a beautiful place, but when you're inside of your own head, that can be a dangerous place sometimes. And one of the things that I think people who, who don't have anxiety or depression or struggle with their mental health at all have trouble understanding is that when you're in the midst of, let's say, you're worrying or you're anxious, or you're depressed or whatever it may be. The interactions that you're having with someone are not the same as if you're not in those zones. So in other words, when you're in that zone, like in the video, I think one of the things that was so interesting is that you're up at the cash register. It's this for people who haven't seen the video. In the yeah, video, she's at the, the cash plane. register. She's paying. And like, and like that may seem like a quote unquote normal event. But when you're in the midst of that anxiety, Again, you're you're feeling all of these eyes on you. You're you're wondering if whispering is about you. And so that whole thing all of a sudden goes from being kind of a neutral event to being a powerfully painful event. And and yet no one around you is going to know that that's happening. And so almost no one's in a position to actually help you. And you're not even right. in a position to help yourself sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's the quintessential panic attack. And for people that have never had a panic attack, 
it's one of those things where you literally feel like you're about to die, like you're going to leave your body. And what it is, is it's it's also like they, they talk about the clinical side of having a panic attack. The big thing that's happening is, is that you're losing potassium. You know, and like it's funny because I know people that are are doctors and psychologists and they're like, you can't necessarily grab a banana, you know, and, and shut it off and what have you. But there's also something when you have a panic attack, a lot of times it's because you're not delegating in your mind. You're not putting your life into certain categories. You're on 11 all the time. You have no way to decompress. You have no way to calm down. You're overstimulated. And when you go out into these real life events, uh, whatever you're dealing with from a personal level, from a career level, just things that are going on in your life, it can be very, very stressful. And that's a panic attack is really your body letting you know, hey, you got to breathe. And I think one of the most fascinating phenomenons with panic is that we don't give ourselves permission to panic. So for so example, take marathon runners, right? At the, at the 18th, 19th, 20th mile, everybody's dizzy. Everybody's breathing heavy, sweating, lightheaded. Some people are going to the bathroom in their clothes. There's, there's a million people watching, right? Everybody should be having a panic attack at that exact mm -hmm. moment. And yet why right. aren't they right? Everyone's talking about it. Like, this is the most glorious moment of my life. I'm going to put a picture of this up on, on my wall is because mm -hmm. people have given themselves permission to feel all of those things. And if you yeah. give yourself permission to feel all those things such that not only is feeling those things not a problem, but it's actually the evidence that you're doing the thing that you came here to do. Well, now all of a sudden our body isn't, we're not judging ourselves. We're not criticizing ourselves. And yet we don't give ourselves permission to do that stuff in hardly any situations, except for like maybe extreme athletic competition or something like that. Yeah, if you're going after something like you're giving the example of a marathon, you know, your mind is not desensitized to the ideology of I have to finish this no matter what, even if I'm in last place, I'm finishing this. You're in a state of fight or flight. And in 2023, because of social media and because of the mechanism and all of our devices and what have you, everybody is on 11 all the time. I often will tell people in this day and age, one of the things that you have to understand is that you're in control of the, of the device. The device doesn't need to be in control of you. And that's not something that necessarily you, you understand immediately. You know, I'm in the entertainment industry, so I see a lot of people and personality and ego and uh, competition and, and all of that. But I'm also, as far as the way that I view society, I still believe that people are inherently good, but... In the day-to-day -day lifestyle of people, um, again, we're all different. But that anxiety and that everyday fight or flight can also shape who you are as a person and how much you can handle. You have to remember something like kind of using the workout analogy here. It's one of the reasons back in 2010, I made a conscious decision to learn how to eat right and learn how to exercise because I exercise to get rid of stress. Like I exercise to get rid of my anxiety. I want to actually get to that, but I want to go back to something that you, that you said about people are good because it, one of the things that happens when you have a certain mood state is that it's, it's kind of like you start to create a story that justifies the mood state. So if you're anxious, you start, you know, maybe it starts out because you, you perceive something, but you also start 
looking around for like, what's the story that explains my anxiety or what's the story that explains why I'm depressed. And it is very hard. That's one of the first things that goes for people, even in something as simple as sitting on a line and like your credit card isn't working or you don't have enough money. The sense that you're a good person can just drop away, right? Like people don't necessarily say, oh, I'm struggling right now. It's like, it actually goes to like, all these people are normal. All these people are good. All these people have their shit together. And I don't, I'm a bad person. I'm an incompetent person. And it can happen so quickly when you're in that state. And if you're in that state repeatedly, that's multiple times that that's happening over the course of a day, even let alone the course of your life. I mean, I think it depends on the individual, how they either figure out a coping mechanism with that. And by the way, part of being in society and part of being a human being is the journey, your life. You know, you're not promised tomorrow. And I think more than anything, you have to understand that everybody's going through something. No matter what you may believe, everybody's got a story and everybody's got a story that is being written every single day that they're on this planet. You know, I'm somebody that believes that we're all made up of energy. And I think that there's a necessity to that because we're all, we're channeling off of each other. The good news is, at least in my opinion, I see that there's a lot more people that are willing to talk about the way that people are feeling now, like what we're doing and expressing these these types of subject matter. Um, but again, Rome wasn't built in a day. That's why music is such a huge part of my life as well. From a very early age, I've always been able to write down how I feel. Or if I've been in a situation or a certain subject matter or life lessons or just life experience, you know, being a lyricist on top of a singer and a performer, I'm also constantly paying attention to my what's in my peripheral. And our guitar player, Zach, he has a great way of putting that, which is don't make it about the painter, make it about the painting. Your view of the world needs to be broad. And the other thing with that, I think that anxiety and depression over the years, it's something where if somebody, if they fail at something or they don't accomplish something or they tried over and over and over again, but they just can't seem to get it and they just make a decision that I'm just not good enough for this and I'm I'm not going to do it anymore. Sometimes that's perfectly okay. You need to move to a different stage in your life because I have a real big issue with people that. And the reason I say I have an issue is I don't want people to think that their life and their legacy is going to be built by their failures. You need to fail in life. That's what hones who you are. That's what helps you with growing as an individual. Your life and your legacy is not going to be built around the foundation of your failures. Your life and your legacy will be built around the fact that you refuse to give up. That's really the point. Yeah. And I think that one of the things, that, you know, in the song I liked about the concept of like inviting to the lunatic ball, you know, like one of the things I'll say to people I'm working with is like anything that you're doing, you should think about in terms of baseball averages. Like if you're getting more than three out of 10 jobs that you apply for, you should be applying for, you know, harder jobs to get. Or if mm-hmm. like you're dating and, and, and more than three out of the 10 people that you 
are interested in you, you should be, you should be kind of like looking for people that you're even more interested in. Like there, there should be a, there should be a predominance of failure in order yeah. to work. And, and that concept of the lunatic ball is sort of like, to me, that kind of captured that a little bit. It's like, you feel like a freak, you feel like a failure. There's a big party. It's, it's called everybody like, you know, and we're, and we're, we're all yeah, getting together. It may sound simple, but sometimes it doesn't need a complicated answer or rebuttal. And that is simply this, like it, it's okay to be scared. It's okay to be nervous. It's okay to be fearful. You got to use that as energy. I, I'm going to do something that I, I kind of told myself I wasn't going to do, but I, I, I did sort of technically promise I wasn't going to talk about heroes, but I didn't like, really promise it. That see, I, I feel like bringing that up through this song. They ain't n- nothing for me to end up like this. I, I, I don't know what the intention was there, but what I heard in that is that it's like we're all walking around knowing how bad it could get at any point. And and then the cage the animal, but you can't take away the rage to me is a is a metaphor for this whole thing that we're talking about. Like you cannot suppress or avoid or minimize what you're going through. It's not going anywhere. You're not going to take away your anxiety. You're not going to take away your depression. You're not going to take away your self-hatred by all of a sudden pretending it's not there. In that song, it's more about determination. The whole principle of heroes is making a statement of most of the people that have influenced me. And this is when I, at the time when I wrote this song, which I got a be honest about you're talking circa 2005 2006 and what i was explaining was all of the people that i have admired over the years and have read about and studied and been influenced by the majority of them are no longer on this earth and that's why i'm saying in that song you know all my heroes are dead and gone but down inside of me they still live on i'm taking pieces from these people that I've been inspired inspired by, influenced by, and I'm utilizing them for my own life, for my own architecture of the path that I want to go down. But that song is about pure determination. So to me, and again, you know, you wrote it, so I'm just taking, I guess, what I'm dragging from it. But that model is the model when we're talking about mental health issues, right? Because even it just, just to play it out a little bit, the basic premise of existential angst is like, you know, I'm, I'm all alone and I'm going to die. Those are the things and the, and the emptiness and the loneliness and the boredom that, that can come from not resolving those two basic facts, right. Or those two basic assumptions, if you will, are very powerful for people. I mean, they spend a lot of time avoiding those concepts. And so what I, what I kind of liked what you did there, even the metaphor of like, taking something from death. Like it's almost like looking, it's, it's not your death in that case, but still mm-hmm. it's the concept of death, like looking at death in the eye. I'm going to get something from this. I'm going to learn something from this. To me, that, that was when I heard that song, especially in the context of a symptom of being human. I, I feel like that was the beginning of getting to the symptom, a symptom of being human. Cause I feel like it was all the same concepts. Yeah, to a point, but ultimately I kind of have to use a reference inside of that as well, which um, is from Stephen King and the Shawshank Redemption, where the statement is, get busy living or get busy dying. If you've been given life, 
on this planet, start living and start living out loud because I'm not really a fan of, you know, every day we wake up, we're closer to death. And I'm, I look at that and go, eh, it's kind of a sad way to look at it, you know? So you got to think about what do you want to achieve because you're not promised tomorrow. But if you live in a world of saying to yourself, well, what does it matter anyway? One day I'm going to die. You're going about it the wrong way. Right. I mean, generally speaking, my feeling is that there's there's three basic ways of dealing with existential angst. There's the fearful way, which is what mm-hmm. you're talking about, which is just like, well, I'm going to die. So what's the point? Part of the reason why that coping strategy persists is that some of the things that people do actually do delay death. So if you don't like, so for example, if you don't get in a car, if you don't get on a plane, if you don't get in a subway, if you don't ever venture out, you are actually probably reducing the chances of your dying sooner. So it's that's not a completely made up coping strategy, but it's not a particularly effective one because you don't ever lose that fear. You just perpetuate that fear because you're avoiding it. So that's like one thing. Then there's like the hope I die before I get old concept. Mm-hmm. You know, like you see in a in like a war movie when someone's decided they're going to die. And then Mm -hmm. they're like, you know, they get up with their motherfuckers and then they have this like moment of bravery and it's, but it's really like they kind of given up. Right. And, and that doesn't work because you're basically saying, I'm so afraid of death that I'm just going to bring it on. Right. Mm -hmm. But but what you're talking about is what I think is the only, is the third way is the only really effective way, which is that you got to look at that fear and ground yourself in the concept of I'm going to simultaneously look at that fear and feel how terrifying that is. And I'm going to live each day with the respect for that. You know, I'm going to live my life like in a way that is life affirming, even in the face of death. And mm-hmm. that's where, that's where I think the, the, the interesting interplay of embracing our fears comes in. And some of the stuff that you've talked about when you're on stage. So, so I guess the question based on that, that I have for you is like, okay, you have been in a situation many times in your life on stage that is for anyone, it's simply terrifying, It's a simply terrifying concept, right? No matter how exciting it is, you know, however much people look at that and in their fantasies, they're like, I'm going to have this rock star fantasy. It's fucking frightening, right? Now you have Mm -hmm. talked about that. That's a perfect example of like, how do you both face that fear, but then get to that place where you're like, but I'm, but I'm doing this and I'm going to try to do this as best as I can. Cause this is living for me. I've been doing this professionally for two decades now. And one of the most comfortable places I feel at home is on stage, whether it's in front of five people or it's in front of 500,000 people, because I played in front of both. But what never changes for me before I open my mouth, on the first song of the set, I'm terrified. And I would be more nervous if I wasn't nervous because it lets me know I'm alive. It lets me know that I care. It lets me know that the people that are in front of me, I'm here to perform for them because my ultimate goal is for us in Shinedown, for the people that walk into the venue or come onto the fairground or wherever we're playing that night in that country, in that city, Our goal is for the people that walked in to make sure they float out. We want to lift them up. We want to make it's believe me, it's a heavy, heavy set list nowadays. And a lot of the subject matter that we talk about in our songs is heavy subject matter. And I've always been very honest about the fact that in our songs, 
the idea is you have to fall into a hole sometimes in order to figure out how to get out of it. So there's a lot of triumph inside of our songs. There's a lot of overcoming, if you will, but you can't ignore the struggle to get to the other side. And that, that's a big part of it. So the nerves, I'm glad I'm nervous because it, it makes me, it gives me an edge too when I'm on stage. It just, it gives me an edge. Right. So let's, let's walk through that. Cause I mean, listen, there's a reason why people turn to music. Music in some ways is, is the first time we experience, and we don't even know what the emotion is, like excitement, fear. You know, you're talking about Stephen King movies. I mean, I think there's art in general, like that's often the medium, right? It's very much like that thing in, uh, I don't know if you ever saw Walk the Line. When oh, they yeah. Were, yeah. It's that, it's that thing is like, you're not going to inspire people. You're not going to lift people up by just like singing the same old thing and happy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, you well, gotta just get in that, in that movie where the guards telling Johnny Cash, he's like, these are prisoners. They're in jail. They're in prison. And he looks at him and goes, do you think they forgot? Yeah. If you want them to follow, if you want them to follow you and float, they're not going to, they're not going to do it unless they know that you know what you're talking about. Right. And, and they, they feel it. Right. So that, that's what you're saying. This, this, this thing with your guys' music, like down in the hole, you know, sort of soaring to the sky, they're feeling that in the music on a personal level. Could you walk us through that process for you and how you handle that, how the anxiety starts and manifests and how you, you kind of interact with it as you start going closer to stage? When we're on the road, the fact of the matter is because the show is so intense, visually, sonically, emotionally, on the road, we laugh a lot. Like we, we really do. Uh, the four of us in the band, myself and Barry and Zach and Eric, um, in the stage of our career right now where we are, we could, if we wanted to, we could have separate buses. We could do separate planes. We could have separate dressing rooms and all that. And that just sounds like a nightmare because we are essentially married to each other. So we ride the same bus together. We take the same planes. There's always one dressing room where we're always together um, because we've never stopped talking to each other and we communicate with each other because we genuinely respect each other and love one another. But being out there and doing as many shows as we do a year, you have to have a camaraderie, not only with the band and once again, talking about how important the crew is, but you're building up to this moment each night that you're going on stage and you have a set list, you design the show, you've had it laid out. You know what the order of the songs are, but for us, it's always been about making the audience just as important to the show than the actual show. So I'm very conscious about breaking the fourth wall when I'm on stage. And what I mean by that is we have a three song rule where no more than the third song into the set can go by without addressing the audience. So a lot of times what happens is the show will open. We're known for these kind of big introductions. At the end of the second song, I will address the audience, basically saying wherever we are, whatever city, you know, we're shining down, welcome to the show. And then there's a big crescendo and then everything kind of fades down, everything goes black. And then the band kind of starts a jam, if you will, before the third song. And they kind of like give me a sounding board, if you will, to then address the audience. 
And one of the ways that we're able to do this, and we've been doing this for the better part of probably now we've been, it, it's such a part of our show. It's probably been in the last 15 years and where I got this model, I borrowed some of this kind of like looking at these shows as a bit of a family reunion where you know your family, but you've not seen each other in a long, long time. So you kind of don't know each other. So the reality is what I say to everybody is wherever we are, I go, if this is your very first time seeing Shine Down, don't be shy, raise your hand. And 80% of the audience consistently raises their hand, which always tells us that the audience is constantly growing. And then upon that, I say, okay, ladies and gentlemen, we have a tradition. Everybody in the building, I want you to look to your left. Everyone looks left. Now look to your right. Look to your right. The person that is next to you right now, you may have never met them before this event tonight. So we're going to change that. Everybody turn to your neighbor because we want to see you shaking hands and giving each other high fives. Tell everybody how nice it is to see them at the show. And all of a sudden, what happens is just like that, the ice is broke. Like everyone turns around and looks at each other and they do. They start high-fiving and hugging each other and being like, what's up? Total strangers. And what that's saying is that, oh, it's not us watching them or them watching us. We're all in this together because we want them to let go. We don't want them to feel awkward or out of the ordinary or anything like that. It's supposed to be an experience. So that's one that right there is a big part of kind of how we transition into the next phase and getting to the next song. And the way the set list is put together is a big part of that. But that's probably the big T between the walk and as you said, and, and I said, them floating out because all of a sudden they've realized three songs in that we're all here for the same reason to let go. Yeah, it seems like metaphorically, it's what can transition from anybody who's feeling like that person at the cash register to the lunatic ball. It's right. like, you know, that's the transition. It's like if anybody out there is feeling alone, isolated, disconnected, you know, you can't guarantee that saying hi to your neighbor is going to necessarily do that. But at least there's an acknowledgement that like, hey, we get it. The other thing too, and man, I'm on stage, you know, the guys have instruments in their hands or what have you. But when I say that, I run down to the edge of the stage. I'm high-fiving security officers. I'm high-fiving fans and everything else. What you're doing goes back to the energy. And I can actually visually see it sometimes in these venues. You can see this energy swirling because everybody is like giving their energy off to each other. And all of a sudden you're empowering each other. You're lifting each other up. Has there ever been a time where you have gone in with that intention and it's like, it's hit you and it's like, uh Oh, I'm having the, the panic. I'm having the anxiety. I'm not feeling it the way that I want to be feeling it. A hundred percent. I've had panic attacks on stage more time than I can count. Like I've forgotten, dude, I've been on stage and been so inside of my mind from whatever I was dealing with that day. It's just been a really stressful day and things at home or, you know, management or, you know, we've got so many things going on. I'm sick. I don't feel good. You know, I'm human. You know what I mean? So absolutely, man, I've been on stage and forgotten like the words of songs that like I've sung for years and I just don't know what the second verse is. I've totally gone into fight or flight a bunch of times when I've been on stage. I mean, do you have any specific coping strategies you use when you're in that zone? 
the best strategy for those types of situations, and you learn this over time because you don't want those events to happen often, but when they do, you just have to be honest about it and laugh it off. You know, I'm lucky that the band that I'm in, we're so connected mentally when we're on stage. You know, Eric, our bass player, man, he he's like, we're not necessarily that interesting individually. This is Eric's opinion, but he's like, but you put the four of us together on a stage and something happens. Yeah, dude, you do your best to kind of play it off by just the humility of the situation. Like if you forgot lyrics or you just had a bad night or what have you. But um, I will express to you something very, very personal. You know, during the fifth album, Threat to Survival, I have a, a past in regards to drug addiction and substance abuse. And I had gotten completely clean in 2011. And I was clean from 2011 all of up to 2014. But the back half of 2014, I had a slip up. And uh, when we were touring the album Threat to Survival, that slip up, I had done a number on myself. And when I got out there on the road, my head, my circuits were scrambled. And the guys that I'm in a band with for about a year, they had to carry me. And what I mean carry me is I was in such a dark place at that time. And I've been clean since March 1st of 2016. But the fact of the matter is, I'm once again, I'm human, you know, but I was never judged by the guys that I'm not only in a band with, but I'm partners with in business and in art. And I remember, you know, they just wanted to help. They just were like, we, we can't pretend to know what you're going through, but, but we're here. And I remember Zach looking at me one time and just, he could tell, man, I was sweating everything. I was basically having to withdraw from everything kind of that first year of that. Like I went on the road to go through withdrawal and I got through it, but I only got through it because I had a support system and because I was willing myself. That was an instance in my life where I was running to the fear where I was like, if this is the way it's going to be. And, you know, if death is coming for me up on this stage, then I got to go at it, you know, with everything that I am, you know, knock on wood, you know, I was able to get through it. But a lot of that also was because of the support system I had. And you said uh, a quote that I thought was really interesting and I, I very much uh, resonated with was, I'm way more dangerous when I'm sober. Yep. Um, and that, I, I kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on that because that's something that I will talk to people about. I know I, I feel that way from my own life. But, you know, people will sometimes when things are going bad and they'll use, they'll be like, oh, this is this is my rebellion. You know, I'm, I'm you know, fuck the system or whatever. And it's like, nah, like that, that's that's not how you're going to fuck the system. Like how you're going to really fuck the system if that's what you want to do, you know, is by, like you said, being dangerous. I don't mean like dangerous, like you're going to hurt somebody, but dangerous in terms of your ability to to have businesses that otherwise wouldn't have happened to, you know, make changes politically and legally in the world Bet on yourself. to help people. Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious from your perspective, like what that concept was for you. Well, the reality was um, it, it came from a young lady 
that I was in a relationship with for a number of years. Um, her name's Teresa, and she's still a really, really dear friend of mine to this day. I have nothing but love for her. And, uh, and we're still really close friends. You know, she was there during my transformation of when I did get clean. And she was one of the reasons, some people that may know this about me, uh, from 2011 to 2012, I lost 70 pounds. I went in, I started learning how to eat right, started learning how to exercise. Um, I got a support system in California where I was based in at the time because I was 5'8". I'll give you an example. I was 5'8", and I weighed at my heaviest 222 pounds. I was a big boy. And I just remember looking in the mirror and just being like, this isn't going to work. And partly also, too, because now my son, who is 15, who turned 15 in December, I remember saying to myself also, too, in regards to drugs and alcohol and just not living a healthy lifestyle, I said to myself, for my son, I'm no good to him dead. But I just remember I'd been out on a bender and I fell asleep in the kit on the kitchen floor and uh, Teresa had come down, you know, from from upstairs, which is, you know, probably 730 in the morning. And she's just looking at this sad person on the floor. And I remember she comes up to me and She's like, wake up. And I woke up and she was just like, you're on the kitchen floor. And I'm like, oh, and she's like, let, let, let's go. So she picks me up, puts me on the couch. You know, I had, yeah, I looked terrible. I had long hair at the time, but she put my hair back, you know, put my hair back in a ponytail, went over, cleaned my face up a little bit, got me some water, but she got right to it. And she looked at me and she said, I'm going to tell you something. And I want you to listen to me really, really closely. And I go, okay. She goes, all the people that are around you, all the people that you know, that love you and you love them, I'm going to tell you something. This other guy that's inside of you, he's not trying to have a good time with you. He's trying to kill you. That's all he wants to do. And myself and all the people that love you, we hate this guy. But you're never going to get rid of him. He's always going to be in there. But what she said next is the closest thing I've ever had to a literal flash of a light bulb going off. She goes, you are way more dangerous when you are clean and sober. When you are clean and you are sober, anyone, they'll follow you because you're going to lead them to victory. And the reason that she said that to me was it's because you put it on that person as well. I, for some reason, have an instinct to surround myself with the hardest workers in the room and be like-minded from that. And I do my best to lead from the front. But anybody that knows me will tell you that in this organization, Shinedown, it's a democracy with a leader, but we all have to lead from the front. But when she told me that, it was profound for me. And like you said, it's not dangerous in the way of like, I'm going to like be malicious or hurtful or anything like that. It's having the instinct in your mind of knowing that you have all your faculties with you. You know what to do. You know how to judge five years from now. You know how to judge dealing with certain egos, dealing with certain scenarios, understanding the situation, having perspective, knowing how to talk to people, you can't do that when you're high. 
it, it just, it doesn't work. I've never known anybody, even if they're like social drinkers or they just kind of smoke on the weekends or this and that, you know, they're, they're, they're usually out of their minds. And for, for me, I can't have just one drink. You know, it's i uh, I'm not a middle of the road type of individual. I'm all or nothing. So that position that she presented to me was something that I adopted for my life and understanding that, yeah, when I'm clean and sober, I'm way more dangerous. And she just basically told me, it's time for you to get your head out of your ass and get back in the game. And that's what I did. What, what did she mean about that person in your head who hates you? What was she referring to? It's not been that long that the medical community has identified or agreed upon that alcoholism and drug addiction can be genetic. Like you can be predisposed. Like for the longest time, the medical community was like, no, it has nothing to do with your DNA. It has nothing to do with your genes. And from research and and what have you, and a lot of research, now the medical community, like within the last 10 years has said, no, there is something to genetics here where you can be predisposed to an addictive personality. And that's, I think, in a lot of ways, what she means. My family has a history of alcoholism. Uh, and drug addiction. So it is in my genetics. The The reason that I, I look at what she said in regards to the other person in me, because that's not coming from like an alter ego or schizophrenic or anything like that. It's that I'm very aware of that other guy in me. That's like, yo man, let me out. Let's, I, I know you got a lot of responsibilities today. I know you got a lot of things that we need to do today. And you're trying to plan this and plan this, but let's just go get messed up. Let's just go get high. I can't let him out, you know? And that, that part of my life also is something for me where I know we've talked about time management, if you will, but that part of my life is literally the part that I have to do one day at a time. I know it kind of sounds corny or cliche, but it's really the truth. Like I didn't drink today. I didn't do drugs today. I have no idea what I'll do tomorrow. Like I, that part of my life, I literally got to do it one day at a time. And what she meant was you got to accept the fact that that person, that part of you is always going to be there. It's whether or not you're strong enough to not let them have the power. It's something that I'll have to, you know, I have to accept the fact that I'll be a, that I'll be an addict for the rest of my life. Like I'll be an alcoholic for the rest of my life. And I'm not really even an alcoholic. I'm more of a drunk the way that I am, I'm just trying to drink to fall down. I'm trying to make the day go away. Once again, get busy living or get busy dying. I, I would rather, I would rather get busy living. One of the things I think can be very difficult for people. Cause what you're talking about is, you know, she said to you like this part of you hates you. Right. So there's this, there's this one part, which is like the, the let's get high that it's kind of like, I can't let that out. And then on the other hand, there's the anxiety, which there's a different relationship with Mm -hmm. a little bit. And I think that one of the things that I've always struggled with either myself or when I'm working with someone who's got addiction is like having a conversation with addiction rather than an argument with addiction. That's interesting. Yeah. It's it's like, I think that's the case with, with mental health in general. It's like, you know, I, I got from my, uh, my Brazilian jiu-jitsu professor who said, when you look at two white belts rolling, it looks like an argument. And when you see two black belts rolling, it looks like a conversation, you know? Okay. 
And to me, that that's the perfect mental health metaphor because it's like we have arguments, we have beat downs with our mental health. It's never a conversation. Yeah. I, I guess the question is that one of the things that's really about anxiety is that having the conversation is a little bit easier because the worst case scenario is like, okay, you have a panic attack. That can be horrible in its own way, but you're walking away from that. When it comes to it, when it comes to addiction though, it's very difficult for some, because it's like, there is more of a consequence if the conversation doesn't go well. Right. You know? And so I'm just kind of curious for you, because you, with your anxiety, it's this whole one way of doing it. And now we talk about your addiction. It's really like, I'm, I'm shutting this down. This is not good person stuff. This is hateful stuff. Like what, what yeah. someone telling me to use is, is hateful. It's not good. Yeah. There's a fine line between happiness and being uncomfortable because in life, especially the way that I see things is, you know, if you're comfortable all the time, you're not growing necessarily. Doesn't necessarily mean that you're backtracking, but you're not necessarily moving forward. The only way to make, monumental change is you have to get out of your comfort zone, you know, and push it forward. So it's the the level of, am I content being happy where I am? Well, ask yourself, are you really happy, you know, with your life and your surroundings? And you have certain people that sometimes will be like, well, I, there's no way that I could go and do this or do this. Like I'm too old or I, there's not enough time. That's all BS. That really is, man. It's, I've always told people, don't focus on a plan B. There's no reason for it. Like whatever your A plan is, that's what you should go after. That's what you should do. And so that's what I mean. Like it doesn't matter how long it takes you to get to plan A. And plan A can shift later on in your life. And you make a decision that, well, this was really what I wanted to do. And for the last 20 years, I've been doing this, but I want to do this. Well, then go do it. I mean, the worst thing in the world is the what if scenario. What if I would have, you know, and then finish the sentence. But that's an once again, that's case by case. You have to be willing to own up to your faults. You have to be willing to own up to your fear. And you have to be willing to understand that if you're a person that doesn't believe that you can be happy, the most uncomfortable thing that you could do is go try to find happiness. Brent, thank you so much for taking the time. It's great talking with you. Uh, congratulations on all this ongoing success, both personally and in in Shinedown. It's it's fantastic to see, and I appreciate you stepping up and like talking about these very difficult issues. Because, like you said, like it, it's happening more now, but we just need to keep that conversation going. So, thank you so much. No problem, man. So there you have it, Brent Smith of Shinedown, talking about Shinedown's new song, Symptom of Being Human, and how he copes with emotional distress. Now, there's so much that we can take away from the conversation with Brent. One thing that I thought was really interesting was how Brent asks fans at Shinedown concerts to introduce themselves to each other during the show. He talks about how this is something of an icebreaker, making the fans feel like they are part of a more communal experience. Now, when we feel anxious, depressed, hopeless or disconnected, we often feel like getting better is such a huge task. The stress of getting better can be overwhelming, actually increasing our burden. Sometimes when we are feeling overwhelmed, we can think about smaller steps that we can build upon as we try to manage our emotional distress. Maybe it's introducing ourselves to someone who we're sitting next to or standing with at a concert. Perhaps it's trying to get outside for a little bit and get some sun or take a walk. 
Sometimes it's adding something nutritious to our diet or drinking more water. Or we may just want to put on our favorite music and see if that helps when we are struggling. And these small steps can build into our feeling a bit better, opening ourselves up to the possibility that we're not totally stuck, that there is hope. And it may take a while for us to figure out the small steps that can result in big change for us. But as Brent said, this struggle in our mental health journey of trying to understand ourselves and what can help us during difficult times is not what makes us different from other people. It is an important and universal part of being human. I want to thank my wife and Hardcore Humanism co-founder, Island Booman, for working with me on our podcast. And I want to thank Ars Longa Media founder, Dr. Patrick Beeman, for partnering with us and Aaron McHugh for producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to my brothers in Odd Zero for letting us use Odd Zero music. If you like what you hear on the podcast, subscribe on your favorite app, give us a rating, and write a review. And if you'd like to take the next step and make changes in your life, check out the Hardcore Humanism Therapy and Coaching Program at HardcoreHumanism.com. So get at it, Hardcore Humans. See you next time.